0: Good morning, everybody. Yes, I asked for the handheld mic because um, two reasons. One is that I had uh, flu during the week or head cold, so my nose is still not under control fully. And the other, you all know me. So, um, <laughs> wiping everything while I'm preaching with that other one is not so good. So, it's here, I'm ready and prepared. Okay, so, but um, I really do want to welcome you if you're a visitor today. Um, uh, this message is a little bit in-house because I've asked, been asked to speak about the fast, to do a rap of the fast, but you are not here by chance. I do not believe God ever makes mistakes, and He is sovereign over all, and so there's a message here for you too, and so I'd love for you to open your heart and just receive as the Holy Spirit would be ministering to you, and um, also we speak much about the fast, and if you haven't fasted, please don't dive under your chair or feel condemned, God never condemns. He brings conviction that produces life and leads you forward into the things of God. So no condemnation. If you look at the history of Israel, you see that those who stayed behind and those who went to battle, both shared in the loot and in the, in the produce from it. So that is the way of God. That is the gift of being together and part of a community of people. We carry one another. And so please receive everything that has been said here to today and that will still be said. In my opening... Word was very much what Katia said and had been ministered already, and that is that God wants you to receive his commendation and well done. In a time when everything in the world, the spirit of the age, is driving the whole world into a satisfying of self, a realization of self, is giving into the needs of self, to let self arise and express itself, is to set aside a week to fast and to deny self and to say to self that you are not in control, but there is another that is greater than you, <coughs> that I serve, and that I will deny you your desires because I pay attention to him and want him to be the Lord of my life. That is big, friends. That is big. And so this is a big moment. This is a big week in the life of Red Point. And not just in the life of Red Point in every individual, but actually in this whole nation and in the world because we believe that our God is powerful. And he uses those prayers we pray in faith to change the history and the course of the future and things that would happen. So it's been a significant time, and it continued to be so. So I want you to really hear and receive the commendation of God and the well done. Because I'd love for you to know that not only is God pleased with you, but actually God wants, um, or I want you to know, that you participated in significant spiritual warfare during this time. Whether you actually felt a particular closeness to God, or whether you felt God had spoken to you at any breakthrough in some area, or if you simply had felt irritable, hungry, and headachey and far from God, it does not matter. You participated. And that is where the significance lies, and that is where the power lies. We do many things out of obedience to God where we don't see the fruit, but it counts in the spiritual realm. And this has been a powerful declaration into the spiritual realm that we are a people belonging to God. I want you to know that participating in this fast and being part of Red Point, you stay at the hand of the enemy who wants to destroy South Africa. The devil has got one plan, and that is to bring anarchy and destruction. But when we pray, God is true to his word. Second Chronicles 7, 14 says, if my people, not the world, it doesn't matter what the world and the politicians and those who do not belong to God are doing, There may be Christian politicians, I'm not saying they're not, but it is the church. This is the word to the church, to the saints. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. He's not asking the world to turn from their ways. Of course, God wants everyone to be saved, but in this instance, he's saying, if we turn from our wicked ways, and God spoke to us, he asked us to consecrate ourselves and to repent in the first two days, and we did that. And as a result of it, we can trust him. He said that we will hear from heaven. He will hear from heaven. He says, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. So you and I participated in God healing this land. I want you to know that you became the fulfillment of prophecy in participating in this fast. Last year, God gave us a significant word, a couple of words, I think, but particular two things that I was reminded of. And the one is that of the sleeping beauty, that the prince is coming, which is Jesus, and he's kissing the sleeping beauty to arise, the bride to arise. And I think that has been happening throughout the year, and it continues to happen. It's continuing to happen. And this fast was a further outworking of it. The church is being aroused. The church is being stirred into the things of God. And you've heard some of those words already shared here this morning. Further, there was a word of God wanting nobody on the stands, but everyone on the field playing and participating. And this may have been the first time that you actually participated in this fast. Or maybe you've participated before, but this time you came with a better attitude. So it means you were not not just on the field running around in the back there, but actually you took the ball and you kicked it downfield and you maybe even scored a try. And that is what has been happening. So you and I, in participating in this fast, became the fulfillment of prophecy. And that is amazing. And I want you to know the well done of God. God is pleased with you. His smile is upon you. He, is, he has great joy and delight in you and in me. Receive that. But then I asked God, actually, what about this, this fast? Well, actually, sorry, I'm a bit ahead of myself, but and look at what, what did God actually say to us during this time. And for me to actually give a true account of everything that has been said would be virtually impossible. Because I believe my theology tells me that as many of us who participated in this fast, God had done things in you and through you and will continue to do things. Started and brought into being as it were, into set into motion because of this time that you have set aside yourself and consecrated to him. Because Mark 4, verse 26 to 28 says, This is what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus is telling, explaining it. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. So during this time, the incorruptible seed of God that has been planted in your heart, Is sprouting and growing, and it is in the process of producing a harvest to the glory of him. Who put it there. And that is amazing. During this fast, I've already said God had called us to consecrate ourselves, which we did. He called us to repentance, which we did. He gave us the promise right from the onset that he would speak to us. In Jeremiah 33, verse 1 to 3, what's the word that came and said that while Jeremiah was still in confinement, In the courtyard of the god in other words in the position where he was at not once he's been delivered or set free or something in that position so god said he would meet us where we are at and he says the word of the lord capital l-o-r-d came to him a second time this is what the lord his name is yahweh says Yahweh stands for the covenant-keeping God, the relational God, the personal God, the true God. He who has made the earth, the Lord, again, capital, who formed it, established it, the Lord is his name. He identifies himself, sets himself apart from all other, the Lord, Yahweh. And this is what he said, call to me and I will answer you. No other requirement, simply call to me and I will answer you. And that's what we did. And what would he do? He will tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Incredible, isn't it? Therefore, my theology tells me God did something profound in you, and you will see the outworking of it into the future. And you will see the significance and the impact of that maybe one day when God allows us in eternity to actually have a glimpse. Of what the significance of this week had been, and of every time you come together as a church to pray. And we give ourselves as individuals to Him. But then I asked God, so then now, for this morning, as we do a wrap of this week, what is it that He actually would love the church to know? And I felt God drop this into my spirit. He said, I want my people to come out of this fast with revelation of my love and faithfulness. I want them to be confident in my love for them personally. I want them to build their faith on my faithfulness to my word and my faithfulness to my nature. Why? Because as has been said already this morning, God wants to commission us. And he said, in order to live out what I am about to do with them, to live out the commission that I'm about to give them, they need to be absolutely secure in my love for them. And they need to have an unwavering faith. A faith not built on their own ability to consecrate themselves, to be devoted, to be sacrificial in life, to be anything other. A faith built upon my faithfulness to my words. And my faithfulness to my nature, or my character. So would you receive that? So, Lord, how do I do this? I really do trust the Holy Spirit to help me this morning to do this. So I felt the Holy Spirit say, well, teach on my faithfulness, and then let the church experience my love. And he's started that already. If you listen to Kati, if you paid attention to the worship, God has been ministering his love to us please receive it. Please open your hearts to receive it and receive the rest of this message to you personally as if God is speaking to you only, no one else around. So then, the faithfulness of God. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9. Sorry, I'm just going to. Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord, your God, is God. Yahweh is God. In other words, Moses saying right on said there's no other God. He sets the Lord Yahweh apart from any, every other that they've come across in history and up to that time. He says the Lord is God, means he's the only true God. And it says, he is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. So what God is saying through Moses is he says that faithfulness is an essential part of my nature. In other words, without faithfulness, if God ceases to be faithful, he ceases to be God. God. In other words, God cannot be unfaithful. To be unfaithful means to act contrary to his nature, which is utterly impossible. So God is faithful. Store that, build your life upon that. 2 Timothy 2 13, Paul echoes that. He says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because, because he cannot deny himself, the ESV says. He cannot be contrary to his nature. It doesn't matter what we are. We are unfaithful. He remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Now, we know that throughout Scripture there are many evidences and testimonies through the Old Testament and the New in God's faithfulness to his words, to his commands the things that he says, shows his faithfulness in the things that he has proclaimed so I'll give you a couple of examples of it if we look at Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy we know that more than 300 prophetic words were given or prophecies came throughout the course of the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah and each one of them perfectly fulfilled by Jesus except the ones still pertaining to his second coming all of them so he is faithful. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Now how outrageous a prophecy is that? No one would ever make a prophecy like that, declaration like that, because it's utterly impossible to come to pass. But not our God, because he's omnipotent. And we'll call him Emmanuel, Galatians 4, 4. But when the set time had fully come, not just any time, the time set or set from the start when Jesus had come, when that set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman. Incredible, isn't it? Faithful, faithful God. What about the seasons of the earth? Just looking around in nature. We see right in the onset, at the start of creation, God said night and day, and then the seasons in place. Genesis 8.22 says, As long as the earth endures seed time and harvest, that means spring and autumn, cold and heat, that means winter and summer, day and night, will never cease. What time is it, friends? What year is it? What season is it? It's never ceased. God is faithful. He's faithful to what He set in place. He's faithful. He keeps these things happening. What about the life journey of Israel or the journey of Israel? We see that Just as Abraham was called right at the start, before he even had any descendants, God spoke to him in Genesis 15. I won't read that now, but it's Genesis 15, 13 to 16. God says to him that these descendants of yours become a nation, but they will find themselves in a couple of generations down the line in a country that they are foreigners. They will be enslaved in that country. But when the set time comes, about 400 years later, they will leave that country with wealth and possessions. (laughs) Hectic prophecy, slave, but you leave with wealth. Exodus 12 verse 40 to 41. It says now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Jeremiah 1, verse 12. God is busy showing Jeremiah a vision, and he's, he's interacting with him. And it says, The Lord said to me, this is Jeremiah, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Or the ESV says, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Now, this is a significant little verse here, because it shows you that God is faithful to his words not to our words. And that is why as Jeremiah is seeing this vision, God is saying to him, what are you seeing? Because he is wanting to make sure that what he is seeing, he's actually seeing what God is trying to show him. He's not seeing some other little thing distracted in the picture. He's actually seeing the right picture and he's interpreting it correctly because Jeremiah is about to bring the prophecy to the nation and God will fulfill that prophecy if it is his words. And so he is faithful to the fulfillment of his words. So what are you and I to do when we feel a prophecy or we feel God is saying something to us and we are not seeing the fulfillment thereof? Well, I believe the antidote to wrong acting is in Scripture. It is there. And God says to us, measure it up against the whole of Scripture. God is true to his nature. He will never give you a prophecy that, is, that goes against his true nature something that is impossible to be fulfilled. You also have been put in a congregation or in a group of people, others that can test it together with you, pray about it, make sure that you actually have heard correctly before you go and just declare it or whatever as well. And then the last thing is that you never need to make a prophecy come true, friends. If God had said it, it will happen. David knew this. Biblical writers knew this. In Lamentations, Lamentations 3, 22 to 24 says, Because because of the Lord's great love, again, Yahweh, Lord, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. You could say His character never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself... Yahweh is my portion. The true God, the faithful God, is my portion. What will I do? Therefore, I will wait for him. So we are to wait in faith and with confidence to see the fulfilling of God's word in your life. In Psalm 27, we see the psalm that David writes, and he is Thinking of all these things, the enemies and everybody, even armies beseeching and coming against him, all this stuff. And he ends up that psalm and he says, I am still confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Therefore, I will wait for the Lord. He says, Be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. That's our posture. So, friends, God is faithful to his words? Will you receive it? Will you bank it? Build your life upon it? God is faithful to his character. We do not build our faith upon our understanding of God's ways because they are far above us. We don't have the intellectual, mental capacity to think and to understand in the realm that God lives. And so he's not expecting us to understand his ways. He isn't expecting us to build our faith on his character because his character is immutable it is the same today tomorrow every day in every circumstance doesn't matter what you face if you build your faith and your confidence in his character that's what God has been saying and that's what he wants us to to do Jesus even said to Peter when Peter was opposing to him washing his feet he said to him in John 13:7, He says you do not realize now what I am doing but later you will understand. God will explain it to us. Some of it may be only in eternity, but one day you'll fully understand, you'll see. And every one of us would bear testimony to the fact that God was true to every word and to his character at all times. So receive this as a stake in your life. God is faithful. He is faithful to his word, and he is faithful to his character. You can build your life upon that. Now then, what about the love of God? How can you experience the love of God? Well, I'd like you to have a look at this slide. The reference to the story is in Luke Chapter 7, verse 11 to 15. But I don't want you to go there. I want you to look at the slide. And I want you to just keep looking at it and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you that it will become a picture that actually in the calling up of it in the future, you will receive what God is doing in your heart right now and today. And that you will have a recollection of the depth of his love for you. So this is a story of a situation where Jesus encounters a widow. He plays out just outside a town called Nain. Nain was a, a, a town not far from Nazareth where Jesus grew up in the Galilean countryside. And it may well be that this lady has encountered Jesus as a young child or something sometime in the past. But she did not know, obviously, who he truly was. And so as Jesus is starting out his ministry, is moving around, proclaiming the actual fact that the kingdom of God has come, therefore repent and turn to God, and you know that, he approaches this town of Nain. And as he <clears throat> is about to enter the city, out comes a funeral procession. And the Bible says that it is a widow who lost her only son. So in other words, it is somebody who has been familiar with heartache and sorrow and probably has had a hard life because her husband has already died in the past and she had to make some kind of a living for her and her family. And now she has not only lost her son, and I had to face the heartache of that. But also, with it, in that culture, it means that she's probably lost her means to a livelihood, that she has lost the title deeds of her property. Her world has gone crumbling down. And friends, she represents maybe you right now but every single one of us at some point in our life going to face this. You're going to face a situation where it feels to you your world is come crumbling down. And you just don't see a future. You just don't see a way out. You've got no way to provide for yourself. She may have had other daughters. She may well have had a dream for their lives. What is going to become of them? How is she going to take care of them? So she's in a deep, deep bit of despair. And it may be you. She is not named, which means for a woman it's not uncommon, but even a son is never named. So it must mean that she's not very significant. She's like an insignificant God. Didn't actually want it to be just her. I believe it is put there because God wants each and every one of us to identify with her. She is just a type. She's a type of a person founding themselves in despair. And then suddenly... Out of nowhere. Just imagine. She's probably not even looked up. She's been downcast following this procession. But then, the procession stops because Jesus appeared. And when you in that moment, when your procession of despair is continuing, you can look at this, call this picture up in your mind, and allow Jesus to appear before you. And in one gaze, looking at her, she knows that he knows her. She knows that she's not unknown to him. There's this amazing interaction just in the gaze that she knows that he knows and feels her pain. He understands it. And he says to her, don't cry. You can do the next slide, please. It says, then he went up, touched the bear. They were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. So, friend, for you, when you and your dark night of the soul, Jesus wants to, to, Jesus wants to say to you don't cry because I am here I am love I am faithfulness here is your future here is what you need here is your wholeness here is your dignity here is your hope receive it See it. Next slide, please. So this story plays out in Luke 15, verse 11 to 24. For many, it would be known as the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. But I call it the demonstration of the unconditional, extravagant, outrageously offensive grace and love of the Father for you and me, our way, his wayward children. The demonstration of the love, unconditional love. Extravagant, outrageous, offensive grace and love of God our Father to each and every one of us, his wayward and undeserving children. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything, probably the lowest point a Jewish boy could get to. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son or your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up And went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Now, <laughs> friends, to really understand the story, you must also understand a bit of the Jewish culture and... What this son had done is basically the most offensive thing that the son could possibly do to his father. Basically, he said to him, You are dead to me. And worse than that, he said, The only value or benefit that I can have from this relationship with you is my share of your hard earned estate. So just give it to me now so that I don't have to kill you to get it. That's basically what he's saying. So this father, to do what he did, is outrageous. He had every right. If you look at the Torah, Deuteronomy 18, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 21, verse 18 to 21, says... That the father of a son like that can take him to the city elders, accuse him of his waywardness and rebellion, and have the men of the city stone him to death. But this father didn't do that. He actually graciously gave him what he asked and let him go. But he did not just let him go, good riddance, out of his life. From that very moment, (laughs) he eagerly anticipated his return. He waited, looking, looking to the horizon all the time. Because it says when he was still a long way off, the father saw him, and he ran towards him. He didn't put on a stoic face and say, come and whatever. He ran towards him. Embraced him before his repentance. Embraced him. And then completely, unreservedly, unconditionally received his repentance or accepted his repentance and forgave him. Not just forgave him, reinstated him. Not as a hireling or slave. Reinstated him as a son in the house. Full access to the inheritance. That, friends this outrageous love, this unconditional love. Why did Jesus tell this story? Not to highlight a son's eyewitness or, or some father. It is because he wants you and me to know that there's absolutely nothing that we can do that would even in the slightest diminish his love for us. Your sin and my sin has no impact on the perfection of His love for us. It doesn't taint it in the least. Of course, your sin causes separation between us and God. Of course, it causes you to not experience the love of God. And it causes you to lose inheritance and things like that. But it does not from His side diminish His love towards us. Not in the slightest. So if you've messed up, this parable is saying simply get up, go back, repent, and be restored. You have got absolute access to an outrageously loving Father whose grace is astounding, whose love is complete and perfect. We can never even, I think, catch a glimpse of the magnitude of it remember that picture let you be confident in his love for you can I have the last slide actually just before that that's why you know the chapter where Paul writes speaks about the grace of God and people ask him if that is true shall we just carry on sinning then what well, is your response? Is says, absolutely not. I mean, that's like the craziest thought ever, that you would just carry on sinning because His love is so, but it is so that you can be absolutely secure in His love. The chapter 8 of Romans 12 ends with saying, for I am convinced, it's 38, 39 verses, I am convinced that neither death, death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, that thing actually says, repeats itself angels and uh, and demons, it's it's spiritual powers. He says it's any powers. Future, past, and whenever there's a repetition of stuff straight after one another, theologians will tell you it's to emphasize the importance of it, to drive the stake home. And that's what Paul is saying. He carries on to say, none of that, neither heart nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalm 103 verse 11 it says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, just think of that, the greatness of that distance, so great as his love for us, his children. The Next slide. So that has that not convinced you, that God loves you. Here's another picture to store in your memory bank. You can't see that one of Jesus as clearly, I think. But really look at it. I know many of us doesn't like to watch that movie, The Passion of Christ. I think it is good to look at it. And I'll tell you just now why. It was hard for me. I've looked at it more than once, a movie. It's hard for me. But the impact that it leaves on you is that you know how much God loves you. And that you can receive a word like this morning, and God takes great joy in you. Because he loves you. Jesus was asked, so say, how much he loves us. So he stretched out his arms on the cross and said this much. And he died so look at that picture friends who being in the very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be grasped or to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now friends, I know that all of you who have been in church for a while know that Jesus had to die. He had to die to pay the penalty for our sin, to be the ransom for our sin, to be the perfect sacrifice for us. But why the cross? Why did Jesus have to die in the most torturous way of execution ever invented by man? Why could he not have just had a clean death, a guillotine or something? He still would have died. Why? Now, apart from the theological answers to that, for the form of prophecy and all those things, I think there's another reason, and that's why I asked you to look at this picture. I think the reason is because God the Father wanted all humanity, through the millennia to come, after that event, to have an absolutely indelible, permanent, inerasable picture impressed in their minds of the incredible love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to each one of us. And why? Why does he want you? Every time you have communion, to be reminded of this. Every time we have Easter, to be reminded of this. Every year. All of mankind. Because he wants us to know That he loves us. And the reason is, God wants us to have absolutely no reason to doubt him. To have absolutely no reason to have a lack of trust in him. To have absolutely no reason to ever question his goodness and his love for us and his actions towards us. He wants us to have absolutely no reason not to trust him, to put our faith, absolutely no reason not to put our faith in his love and in his faithfulness. Amen.